Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about the environmental and policy implications of the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Joining us in the studio are three faculty members from the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Uh, SPIA and Law Professor Jim Barnes is here. He was the dean of SPIA from 1988 to 2000. He's also a former general counsel for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, Associate Professor Diane Henschel is here. She has a professional interest in sublethal health effects of environmental pollutants. She also is an expert in risk assessment and uh, we'll be talking with her about a variety of issues. And Professor Christopher Kraft is here. Chris is a wetland specialist who was the president of the Society of Wetland Scientists from 2008-2009 and is currently the uh, immediate past president and he'll be uh, leaving that role uh, next week but will still be involved with that organization. You can join us uh, on the program by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348. Our website is wfiu.org slash noon edition if you want to send us an email with a comment or a question. Well, thank you all for being here. This is a very um, – it's a very – broad, wide, devastating topic, uh, this oil spill that's going on. I wanted to just throw out the, the immediate first – my immediate first question is what, what – how do you assess the magnitude of this issue, this problem? Jim? In terms of the amount of oil and I think in terms of the ecological effects, it's, it's the biggest one we've seen in U.S. Uh, coastal waters. I mean the – the couple of points of uh, comparison would be when the Exxon Valdez went went aground in uh, Prudhoe Bay, uh, spilled about uh, 260,000 uh, barrels of oil. Now, there was a, a blowout of a well owned by uh, Pemex, uh, the Mexican oil company, in 1979 that uh, spilled in a course of uh, uh, 10 months over uh, 3 million barrels of oil. But I think current estimates are that we're – if we haven't gotten there, we're, we're approaching that. So I think that maybe gives you some perspective on sure. it. Sure. Diane, did you want to add anything to that? Um, I just think from this perspective that we don't fully know what the effects are going to be. So even all of our experience that at least the United States has had in terms of cleaning up above ground, above water, mm-hmm. spillage, we're, we're not fully sure of what we're going to be dealing with with this vast amount being churned up and also with the kind of treatment that's been had so far. So injecting the dispersants into the gushing oil, we're, we're not sure what that's going to do entirely mm-hmm. either. So I think there's a lot of effects that we aren't yet certain what the manifestations are going to be. Yeah, I think I, that's uh, an excellent point. I think there are so many different things that could happen. I think the, the wetlands – and Chris is an expert in wetlands. We can start there with what you know about the effects on the wetlands and uh, some of the issues that could be – facing us as we go on. Well, I would first agree with Jim that it's the largest ecological disaster in um, my half century of living. And uh, the spatial scale is so great. You know, the effects are now from Louisiana into the Florida panhandle in terms of coastal effects. And, um, you know, the oil continues to come out. So it's uh, until it's capped, um, the uh, the disaster will get larger. Not it seems just like a, we don't even know where – to begin to to get our brains wrapped around this because just as you say, it's still gushing. So how do you make any judgment or any comparison when you don't have a, a finite number with which to – well, of course, you can always say when you go over the top of the other numbers you are. But Well, we, we have some uh, experience in the past working with oil spills and um, particularly in Louisiana and Texas. So we have some ideas about once the oil comes, comes ashore, how to clean it up. And there's different techniques – in different situations. One um, technique that's been used in Louisiana when you have water on the wetland is they actually burn the oil. They burn the oil off and they burn the plant tops too. But as long as the below ground um, plant parts, the rhizomes and roots stay intact, they can provide food for the plant to re-sprout and grow back. What's, what's the environmental impact of burning the oil? 
Well, there's probably an air pollution issue that somebody like Jim could address. But people think of this, that's a catastrophic way to, to treat the spill. But that's one, one way to do it. Another is, um, and I advocated this before we start sending legions of people out to clean it up, is sometimes you just don't do anything because the marshes are fragile. And any kind of foot traffic, vehicle traffic can be almost as uh, deleterious to the to the vegetation as the oil itself. Mm-hmm. Does your organization have a position on what should be happening down there? <laughs> we do have a position, <laughs> and I can um, direct people if they want to go to the Society of Wetland Scientists. I'm sure they could Google it, but we came out with a, a rapid response white paper about a month ago, and basically our society's position, and, and this is something the administration did, is that they should have a moratorium on offshore drilling until mm-hmm. we can um, – you know, figure out how to do it maybe in a more safe and environmentally friendly way. Mm-hmm. I know, Jim, you came out very quickly after this bill and said there should be a moratorium as well. Yes, and I really was stunned because I would uh, read that the uh, President Obama had issued a moratorium and then shortly thereafter there was an article in the New York Times that said, well, there's some permits continuing to be uh, issued. And then subsequent to that, we've also seen some of the same uh, political figures from the Gulf states that have been – been uh, arguing that the response isn't sufficient, uh, indicating that that uh, drilling ought to go go ahead because of the loss of jobs. And to me, it, it, it's kind of the ultimate no-brainer to to go ahead with uh, drilling and put f- you know uh, at risk the uh, further the uh, economy and the uh, ecology of this area without a good understanding of what went wrong. Now, I mean, I think over. The, the last two months, we're starting to, to get a good or better sense of some of the bad decisions that were made by the company, by the uh, uh, Minerals Management Service at uh, uh, Department of Interior, where there I think there are, there are systemic problems in both uh, organizations. I think there also are some serious problems about the federal response, uh, federal government's response. Uh, capabilities and the way they've they've uh, handled this one. So mm-hmm. let, let's get that sorted out before we we go back in with another uh, uh, deep, uh, deep ocean well. Mm-hmm. You know, as just a, a, a regular run of the mill citizen with absolutely none of the expertise that is sitting across the room from me here. We're we're used to that. That's the way we are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, that's right. Over the years, we have become very used to that. But uh, what boggles my mind is that uh, an oil company, or certainly in this case, companies, um, would be allowed to embark in such an en- on such an endeavor with no viable plan B, should this happen. I, I mean, that's just kind of a head shaker. Would anybody take that on as to how in the world this could have come well, down? This well, way? I would agree with you. And I mean, and certainly there are federal regulations that require spill prevention plans and, and re- response plans. And uh, uh, some of those are on file and some of them were approved. I mean, some some of them, uh, those analyses, though, I think are, are, are beyond laughable. Uh, the the uh, BP had submitted an environmental uh, assessment that said, well, the worst worst case could be 240,000 barrels a day into the Gulf for 100 days. And they said, in the event of such an enormous spill, no significant adverse impacts are expected to beaches, wetlands, or coastal dwellings. Well, <laughs> now, I suspect that a thir- any th- average third grader in this community right. would look at that and say, that's nonsense. How could professionals have put that together, submitted it to the government on behalf of a company, and had the government uh, approve it? Now, uh, so would that have gone to the EPA? Is that who would have? Uh, no, that would have gone to the Minerals Management uh, uh, Service. They're, they have the responsibility both for the, the leasing program, for, for the review of the environmental assessments that are uh, done, the spill prevention plans, which, which may, might, might have gotten run by the, the uh, Coast Guard, and they also are responsible for collecting the uh, royalties. That, that sounds oil. like having an attorney diagnose your appendicitis. I mean, it seems like something the EPA certainly should have been involved in. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, I think that they should have people on on staff to, to, that are familiar with the environmental uh, uh, problems 
in the vicinity of, of where this uh, drilling is going to take place so that at least in the first instance, you would expect a credible review be, mm. being done there. I mean, the other thing that happened, and this was during the last administration, is that it put in place a, what's called a categorical exception, said these, the, we don't expect that there are going to be serious problems here, so you really don't have to do the kind of full-blown environmental look before you're allowed to go ahead and actually drill on these leases that you had earlier bought. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't understand. Uh, I guess I haven't followed or, or seen the uh, numbers on how many of these deep, deep water wells, deep wells there are versus the ones that are in shallower water. Uh, does, do any of you have that or know, have any sense of the only number I've got for you there, Bob, is that I, I think I saw that there were 33 drilling operation, deep, uh, uh, deep ocean well drilling operations that were affected by the the uh, uh, memorandum or the, the moratorium that mm-hmm. uh, Obama put in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know there was some d- discussion about the moratorium and whether it should be on deep water or on all drilling offshore, and, and so I, I just hadn't remembered seeing any of those numbers. But so. but the. Uh, uh, Blowout of the Mexican well occurred in I think less than 200 feet of, of water. You had a, a gas came up platform, uh, caught on fire, blew apart, uh, fell down into the water. Uh, meant that the blowout uh, preventer uh, didn't work there, and it took him 10 months to to uh, turn that one off. So if if you don't have uh, that in place, you've got a got a problem. And another thing is that that there's some other countries that require more by way of blowout uh, preventers than the U.S. does. Uh, and, and it's it, I think the added costs about five hundred thousand dollars. But it's one that you don't have to have a mechanical uh, turn on and off. You can do it acoustically. And uh, yeah. So maybe maybe we need to step up our requirements there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Our phone numbers uh, again are 855-0811-1877-285-9348. That's from outside of the Bloomington calling area. And you can uh, come to uh, our program. You can join us on our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We're talking about the uh, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico and the uh, the, the – drilling disaster, I guess we could call it an environmental disaster, uh, with three representatives from the School of Public and Environmental Affairs here at uh, Indiana University. Um, let me ask you again the, sort of a general question, and Diane, we can start with you, about the response to date. How would you evaluate the response by the both the government and by the company BP itself? Um, well, obviously, in the end, it's been proven to be completely inadequate. So inadequate is an easy starting point from a perspective of uh, – I also deal with risk communication and, and enabling the citizens to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, the government's doing a better job than they've ever done and they're doing an actually very good job at this point of pulling together the information, making it easily available, providing both monitoring information, daily air monitoring information, water monitoring information – any warnings about seafood at this point, everything is right there, easily available on the web. So you do need to have access to the web, but nonetheless, it's, it seems like I've never seen such a good, complete pulling together of information and presenting it. So from that perspective, I think they're doing a great responding job, but that's not a cleanup issue. Mm-hmm. And from a cleanup issue maybe the issue is that it was too big a blowout that nobody would have done very well. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, I think um, they could have done a better job of being forthcoming or, or done their planning ahead of time more efficiently. And I think I'm not the only one to speak on this one. No. Chris? Well, I think uh, they're in the damage control stage right now. And the damage is just continuing from a mm-hmm. We can't really assess the extent of damage until, again, the oil quits coming ashore, at least until they get it capped. From a a scientific perspective, I have a lot of colleagues in Louisiana because half the state is wetlands, and um, they have a lot of long-term studies set up. And so should oil come ashore into some of their permanent plots, they do have the opportunity, you know, with years of pre-spill data to gauge what sort of effects are going to be. But again, I think it's um, people are putting out fires over – 200 miles of linear coastline right now. Wow. So is there any thought that, okay, let's just wait till they get this capped before we start really 
making a big effort to take care of this or do we need to just go ahead and deal with it as it comes? I think you've got three or four things you've got to do at the same time. I mean, you've, you've got to try to, to stop the source of the problem. You've got to try to figure out how do I do a better job of, of intercepting the oil that continues to flow before it gets to uh, sensitive areas. As Chris said, you're going to be in a mode of having to try to clean up some of those areas. I think you have to start trying to, at the same time, you have to try to figure out what, what went wrong that caused the problem. So, I mean, if you've got a lot of other drilling and uh, operations that are out there or wells, there, there's some things you ought to go back and, and look at for them. I mean, given, given the apparent level of corruption and ineptness in the minerals management service, it's hard to have a lot of confidence in the permits or the review of the the mechanics and so on mm-hmm. th- that are in place. So I, th- I think you have to do that. It, now, I want to ask you about the use of the word corruption in that. What what kind of corruption is there? Are there people that are taking, you know, on the take to, to look the other way? Or? Well, th- there was an inspector general's report. In fact, there have been a couple of inspector general's report that have come out on the minerals management service. One, I think about 2007 before the end of the Bush administration, another one that came out within the last month. That suggested. I mean, you had you had uh, people in the uh, the Louisiana uh, portion of the Minerals Management Service that were taking gratuities and so on from from oil companies. There are suggestions that that they were letting uh, people in the oil companies write up their inspection reports in pencil and then simply uh, fill it, you know tracing over it with an with an uh, ink pen. Uh, people that that were uh, not doing their jobs. A lot of uh, uh, people moving back and forth between the industry and the, the minerals management mm-hmm. service. So I, uh, I mean, corruption is a is a wrong area. I mean, is a strong term. It, at a minimum, there there are s- serious systemic problems in that uh, agency. Okay. All right. Uh, we have a couple of phone calls, so let's go first to Mark. Mark. Hi. Um, I really find uh, it really hard to uh, believe how calm everybody's voices are. And uh, your previous caller mentioned that, you know, people are pulling information together and uh, doing a fine job right now. You know, I would just say that, you know, if somebody had snakes in their baby's bedroom, they might have a more appropriate to that that we should be seeing and hearing, frankly, from you people. This is too, you know, the for 240,000 gallons to leak should put everybody on absolute high alert. This is terrorism. This is jeopardizing our entire country. It's jeopardizing the Gulf of Mexico and possibly the Atlantic Ocean, probably the Atlantic Ocean. Everybody should be talking in high-pitched voices and demanding that everything be done to stop the flow of oil, to clean the flow of oil, and to protect the coastal areas. People talk about how the, you know, it's out, as long as it's out in the middle of the ocean, that's fine. The middle of the ocean is where, you know, the food that we eat grows. This is just absolutely insane, and we need a little something besides calm voices. All right. Well, no, no, I should say nobody has said that just because in the middle of the ocean it's fine. Nobody in here has said that anyway. But I, I appreciate your call and your comments. Diane? Um, I, I absolutely agree with all of the sentiment, but I can't agree with the yelling component of it because what I've discovered is that when you start screaming, people stop listening. And so if we want to try to be convincing, we need to at least stay calm while we discuss the issues and try to figure out what needs to be done. But in terms of the urgency, in terms of the impact, the potential impact is, is far greater than I think we even can understand yet. Mm-hmm. And, and in terms of the potential for um, the, what, it, what it implies for what we need to do in the future is, is huge. I absolutely agree with you for, on all of that. But I think staying calm is essential while we deal with it. Well, I just agree with one of Mark's points, and that is we don't talk a lot about the effects of oil in the estuary and in open waters itself, in the water column, because usually spills tend to occur near land, and so our efforts have focused there. But there's a lot of people concerned about the effects on aquatic life, phytoplankton, 
zooplankton, mm-hmm. things that make up the food web in the mm-hmm. in the Gulf, and, and not only the effects of the oil, but a lot of concerns about the effects of the dispersants that they use. Yeah, because the to- potential toxicity effects or the unknown effects of them. The the estimates are that it, there's a potential for a complete collapse of the food chain in the midwaters. Yeah. I mean, I, I just would would go one step uh, further there, and I don't think anybody here feels the the response has been uh, adequate, other than Diane mentioned that she thought the. Uh, uh, arraying of information being made available to the public uh, on some of these issues was was much better than we've seen before. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree that the the response by both the uh, company and the uh, federal government has fallen far short of what uh, what taxpayers should expect in this instance. Okay, we have another call. Let's go to Rick. Hey, Hello, Rick. Folks. Hi, Rick. Um, Hey, well, first of all, kudos to the uh, station for assembling uh, far more brain power to address this issue than we've been witnessing from Congress the uh, last uh, <laughs> few weeks. Um, but one thing I have not heard from the Assembled Brain Trust in Washington is anything, any discussion of bioremediation. Um, now, we are dealing with a product which is naturally occurring. It is the, the product is oil, of course, and it is um, the result of... Um, you know, carboniferous uh, plants that uh, grew, um, you know, back in the carboniferous period. And um, there are things out in the environment that actually consume the oil. Uh, I believe it's called a pseudomonas bacteria that uh, will actually uh, take the long uh, hydrocarbon chain into its, um, you know, cell wall, which uh, is hydrophobic, of course. Uh, It takes a lot of energy, but uh, it carves it up into bite-sized morsels um, that can be, uh, you know, then uh, dined upon at its leisure. And those are called fatty acids. Now, there was a Russian, um, I believe some Russian scientists uh, have isolated four enzymes, which will actually trim the hydrocarbon molecule without the necessity of it being consumed. So you can sprinkle this stuff over the oil, and it actually breaks it up into uh, fatty acids, which in turn are consumed by a great many other creatures that don't have that particular adaptation. So what is happening? I really would like to know, um, you know, from from you folks, to the extent that you know about it, uh, is there any effort to do bioremediation? Okay, uh, Rick, thanks for the question, and Chris is going to answer it for you. Well, actually, there are some folks working in Louisiana who um, are using plants and nutrients to sort of stimulate decomposition of the oil. Now, these are more experimental studies, so they haven't been, you know, put into large scale. But um, I hate to use this word, but, you know, nutrients, uh, fertilizer are nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus. And they've used these in wetlands that have been oiled. They actually fertilize the wetlands to stimulate the bacteria and the plants to grow, and it ratchets up and it increases the rate of oil degradation. But you've got to be careful about this because, um, you know, we don't want to contribute to eutrophication at the same time that we're eating up the oil. So th- there are some of these techniques, but, again, you have to think about the scale at which they're going to need to be applied is not a small matter. Mm-hmm. And I think the other point that you need to remember is that at the rate at which the oil is being gushed out, there is no way that bioremediation is going to take care of it fast enough to prevent a huge impact on the ecosystem and human health. All right, Rick. Thanks a lot. I hope those. Thank uh, you very much. Yep. Thank you for the call. Thank you for the uh, question and the answers. We're going to take one more phone call before we have to take a break, and this one's going to be from Christine. Christine. Hi, um, I'm actually a third-year student at SPIA. I've had all three of your panelists <laughs> as professors. Good. And um, I was just act- I'm actually doing an internship with the Wilderness Society in D.C. right now, and it's obviously a huge topic. The hearings on the Hill are very centered around the oil spill, but also the climate legislation that's trying to get passed by the president and his administration. And it's interesting to me that it seems that senators are very reluctant to go forward with a cap-and-trade on carbon emissions, even in light of this disaster. And I guess um, what I would ask um, my professors there is, do you think that the oil spill should be in the discussion of climate legislation, and, and how should it be linked to it or incorporated in it? All right. Thanks for the question. Well, I guess I'd split that into, into two pieces. I mean, I think the oil spill... Uh, should clearly factor into our uh, uh, energy policy uh, discussions. And it seems like it's another one of those warnings that we get, I don't know whether it's the canary in the mine, but that 
that that we're reaching a point with our fossil fuel energy that that now we've we've exhausted most of the readily accessible uh, sources of uh, petroleum, and so we're now talking about as we were with the Deepwater Horizon, going down uh, one mile into the ocean, uh, starting to drill a hole that will end three miles below that and and pull up uh, oil. So we're we're engaged in in higher risk uh, activities, and and we're pushing harder and harder to to keep finding ways to fuel our our fossil fuel uh, appetite. So I think it ought to be a warning to do something about that. I think I might separate that from from uh, uh, cap and trade, although I think that cap and trade worked very well for the uh, dealing with the acid rain program in the uh, – our experience in this country. I'm not sure that you really can get a, an effective cap and trade program uh, in place and, and uh, workable and I'm more in the camp that what you need to do is start putting a price on uh, carbon. It can be, be lower but over time it ought to be raised and, and, and then we'll let people make decisions as to how they can use le- uh, less energy or use it more, more effectively. Um, before I let uh, Chris and Diane answer this, could you give us just a very brief uh, definition of cap and trade? Uh, sure. Well, with a cap-and-trade program, what you deci- do is decide what, what, what's the maximum amount of a particular pollutant you want to uh, allow to be emitted into the atmosphere in, say, a, a year. And then you work uh, backwards from that either to place limits on individual facilities or to hand out what are called allowances. You let, let people have the permission to, to, to emit a certain amount when they do omit uh, it, they have to surrender those uh, allowances. I'm not. I'm not sure if that mm-hmm. I've, I've given mm-hmm. you the the, uh, the help that uh, you need. But in the case of acid rain, what we decided in 1990 is we were going to going to cut in half the amount of sulfur oxides in this country. We set a cap at that that lower uh, level. Allowed the economic system to to, to uh, trade those. Uh, uh, reductions. It turned out they they came about a lot more cheaper than people had had projected, and we've had a a dramatic reduction in the amount of sulfur oxides mm-hmm. in this country. Okay, Chris, do you want to respond? Well, I, I can just answer that in a peripheral way because I'm more of an ecologist than a you know environmental attorney. But um, you know, wetlands are one of these uh, ecosystems that are being discussed as a carbon sink to actually using the cap and trade system, and the reason is they um, compared all other land land cover types, they sequester more carbon every year on a per area basis, like acre for acre, Mm -hmm. than do any other types of systems. And as one of the the callers said earlier, you know, most of the fossil fuels we use today, the coal that came out of swamps that were formed 400 million years ago, and most of our oil and gas comes from shallow embayments like estuaries and shallow water areas that um, those are basically just dead phytoplankton that have died and been preserved for millions of years. So, mm-hmm. but we are um, releasing it into the atmosphere a lot faster than nature is storing it. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Uh, from an energy perspective and an energy production pers- perspective, I think that absolutely the potential impacts on both health and the environment should be considered significantly more than it is. I think the costs on the human on the health system. I think the costs on the environment should be brought into the cost-benefit analyses a lot more than they are. And I think that we really need to have a much more realistic uh, um, understanding of both short-term and long-term, i.e. acute and chronic and very long-term like nuclear impacts on our earth and our ecosystem and our human health um, before we consider whether or not there's really balance between the different types of energy. And so when we rebalance the energy framework, I guess. I think those things should be brought into consideration significantly more. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right, Christine. Thanks a lot for the call. All We've, right. Thank you. We're going to have to take a short break and then we'll be back with uh, our three guests today, Jim Barnes, Diane Henschel, and Christopher Kraft, all from SPIA on the IU campus. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be back in a minute. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. 
Production support comes from Smithville Telephone, information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. Programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as play and opera reviews are all available on demand. Find out more at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m., 11.55 a.m., and 5.45 p.m. to catch that day's feature. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guest today, Jim Barnes, who is a law professor and a professor in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, School of Public and Environmental Affairs, uh, Associate Professor Diane Henschel and Professor Christopher Kraft, also with the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. If you want to join us, call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Our website is wfiu.org slash noon edition. If you want to send us an email uh, with a comment or a question. So let's go immediately back to the phones. We have Stan next. Stan? Hi. I don't expect your <clears throat> experts there to discuss political issues directly, but I would like to comment that if more people were aware of how their representatives voted, on issues that affect them, uh, perhaps we would have more attention spent to issues that affect the population. I wonder whether um, something like provincial governments, that is, associations of, of uh, states, might be a better way of dealing with some issues that the federal government takes up in huge multi, uh, multi-unit bills. Thank you. All right, Stan. Anybody have a comment on that? Jim does. <laughs> well, I, I was agreeing with you uh, up to where, where I thought you were, were going to take us with that uh, question because I think a, a kind of a look back at some of the history and the legislation uh, affecting uh, oil pollution shows that, that our representatives in Congress have done a, done a number of things that not necessarily have been particularly helpful. And, and you've got a current issue of whether, the, uh, whether there should be a liability cap and uh, some some of the representatives have put forward an idea that the cap should be raised, and, and there others have been been uh, objecting to that legislation and keeping it going forward. The, the net effect of a cap on on liability means that rather than the the person that created the problem paying for it, it means that that burden's either being put on you and I as a taxpayer, or it's left with the fishermen and the the uh, people that live along the the uh, Gulf and get their. Uh, uh, return there. Mm-hmm. I, I also would like to point out that part of the problem lies with the American people, who seems to have who seem to have a very short uh, memory. And I think it's up to us to remember to check past histories as we vote every year, every year, or especially every four years, or every time we vote for senators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the whole uh, issue of, of uh, an informed electorate uh, is a really Good issue, and it's it's really sort of struck me. Um, this will sound very sort of uh, political in nature, but all the people today who are complaining about what's going on in the world, laying the place uh, the blame at the, at the feet of President Obama, hmm. when he's been in office for what less than eighteen months, and we had eight years of a different administration. I mean, it, it's not always the fault of. The, the, person current who's a, person, the current yeah. person who's in office. So there have been senators, congressmen, a lot of people have made votes on various things. The previous president, uh, Bill Clinton's administration, there probably were things in that administration that were mm-hmm, still, mm-hmm. you know, there are still issues today. Chris, you want to respond? Well, I just want to say there, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. <laughs> and, and you've heard this from other people, I'm sure. But, you know, we're a fossil fuel-based society and we depend on it. And so I think I mean, I hate to say this, but if you want to allocate a little blame, you can just look at yourself in the mirror when mm-hmm. you get up in the morning. So mm-hmm. yep. uh, there's more blame attributed to some entities than to others, though. Yeah. All right. Let's go to Wayne on the phone. Wayne? Hello, Wayne. Go ahead. 
I, I want to ask about the hazards of trying to ensure safety. We all want to ensure safety, but there may be a hazard. For, for instance, I, I understand that the requirement is for multiple redundant blowout protectors. And so it seems to me multiple blowout, redundant blowout protectors might cause carelessness because the oil drillers will assume if one blowout protector fails, the redundant protector will succeed. In other words, the hazard of trying to ensure safety. Secondly, there ought to be some kind of a method of testing these blowout protectors without letting any oil escape to ensure that they will work if there is a blowout. And finally, another hazard of trying to ensure safety. I understand the oil companies are not allowed to drill for oil near shore where the water is shallow and drilling is much safer. Seems by, by requiring far offshore, you know, where the water is deep drilling, the government is actually causing tragic consequences because it, it's forcing the oil drillers to drill in very deep, dangerous water. Okay, we'll take these uh, one at a time. Let's start with the last one first about drilling near the shore, Chris. Well, I, I don't think that's entirely correct because in Louisiana, they do all kinds of drilling in the marshes and, and in the shallow water. Um, the reason they're going further offshore is that they've pretty much started to exhaust these easy-to-access um, supplies and well fields. So, uh, you know, in another 10 years, they're going to be – the technology is going to allow them to drill deeper, 15,000 feet. Now, but I think we've also seen that the uh, the ability to deal with problems – as the technology outpa- has technologies outpaced our ability to deal with the problems when they come up. Mm-hmm. I'll take the, the middle question maybe next. In, in fact, the current regulations require that the, the blowout preventers be tested on a re- regular basis and there was there's, – there's some evidence in, in this current case that the uh, pressures and so on that were used to test those uh, blowout preventers were reduced at the – uh, request of BP when it started to run in, into some uh, problems. And then I guess if I can go back to your, your, your first question, it, it seems to me that the, that, uh, the, the first line of defense when, when you're engaging in, a, in an action ought to be, can, can I put some things in place to try to, to keep the problem from occurring in the first place? And then do I have some mechanisms that can come into play uh, if if something goes wrong, and when we send a man, try to send a man to the moon, with with great risk to uh, uh, life, we we, tr- we try to have some redundant systems so that we're, we can bring them bring them back alive. And I think the same thing ought to be the the case with the uh, uh, d- deep well oil drilling. As, as Chris mentions, the, the the riskier it is, the the more you want to try to have in place to. Pr- uh, uh, prevent it, and I, I found an interesting comment from the uh, CEO of Total, the French oil company, the other day that basically said you got two kinds of risks. One is whether you're going to find oil when you uh, drill, and, and we're ready to take that one, but we're not going to take the additional risks unless we're pretty sure that we, we can can do those deeper. Uh, drilling operations safely and be in a position to, to respond. I.e. says, I'm not going to bet my company unless I'm sure that my people have in place uh, uh, the kinds of things we need. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting, brings up an interesting question. Is BP going to survive this? Should they survive this? Uh well, we don't know whether whether they're going to to survive it, but I think you you have a company that I think, particularly over the last decade, has shown that it has a culture that's pretty insensitive to both occupational safety and uh, envir- environmental problems. I mean, you can can march through from the the uh, uh, Valdez to the, uh, the the explosion at Texas City that killed a number of people and resulted in a huge fine to them and then another fine, the largest fine that OSHA ever issued several years later because they hadn't fixed the problems uh, 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 earlier. Uh, they, they had a major spill at the pipeline that, that runs to Prudhoe Bay that they're uh, responsible for and that they had uh, inadequate uh, maintenance for and I believe there were cr- criminal charges out of that. So I mean at a certain point, you wonder whether you've got somebody that's kind of a habitual uh, criminal and they, you, you either need to get the culture changed or uh, – 
or, or maybe, let, maybe. let nature take its course, I guess. Yeah. Okay, we have several calls, so let's uh, get to the phones again. Mark is first. Mark? Uh, yeah, the caller before me asked part of my question, but basically what uh, I don't understand is why don't we uh, ban, and I mean ban, this deep well drilling because obviously it's not safe and there's all kinds of technology that we need and allow drilling on land or in Anwar or wherever or closer to shore. You kind of answered that with the other one. And then uh, second, why don't we have all these oil companies go together and have a fleet of skimmers for when something like this does happen? We should require them to have the ability to clean up after they cause some kind of mess like this. Okay, Chris. Well, I, I like your second idea, and that is the, the oil companies should be pooling resources every year in anticipation of one of these types of spills because, mm-hmm. you know, this is not the first and it's not going to be the last. And so, exactly. you know, I hope we'll be better prepared in 10 or 20 years when the next generation perhaps gets a, a spill that's an even greater magnitude than this because, you know, we are going to be going to more difficult-to-reach places to get oil in the coming decades. And how much of the the issue about uh, offshore drilling that's closer to shore, how much of that is a state's rights issue? Well, I think there are two dimensions to the, the state's rights. One is whether the state has a right to share some of the revenues that come from it. And you have some states that are more interested in others than uh, doing that. And then I think there is a state has a legitimate interest in protecting its uh, uh, shoreline and, and maybe making that balance. Do we want to want to exploit – see that resource exploited or do we want to guard against the, the kind of uh, spill we've seen here? Or I mean some, some, some of the listeners may remember back to 1969 when there was a – the Santa Barbara Channel – a uh, shallow well blew out and over 10 days I think spilled about 100,000 gallons of, uh, of uh, oil, soaked, soaked the beaches al- along there. Great hue and cry really helped lead to the, the establishment of EPA in 1970. And I think the Californians have been among those that say we value our coastline more than we do uh, using that offshore area for – uh, exploration. Okay. Our next caller is Debbie. Debbie? Hello. Um, I just have a comment about the language that has been used since the beginning of April 20th. When this occurred, I think it minimizes the problem when they use the term spill. Um, I, From the pictures and everything, this has looked all along more like a geyser, an ongoing problem, an ongoing issue. And spill sounds so neat and finite. Um, and what happened in Alaska was a spill. However, this is still an ongoing geyser. And to not call it that is to minimize the problem. Right. Okay. I fully agree with you. And the other aspect is there. there's all these assumptions that we can base ourselves a lot of our information that we have about how to handle things comes from above ground spills, above water spills. And we're dealing with a huge volume that's coming out deep water um, with gas. We're doing things to it that we've never dealt with and we're really not assessing the situation. We're really not even trying to manage the situation in any sort of way that that is forethinking enough um, to me. And I fully agree with you that every single time the language is trying to minimize and the problem is, is it's got started by BP. BP was allowed to take control of the communication in the beginning. And it's really only been, to be honest, the um, pressure of the media. And one of the things that I think is really important that I'm really glad to see and that maybe this won't be lost out of um, public memory so quickly, with the Exxon Valdez, it was farther away. It affected one state and it, it was a, not a very populous state, whereas here – it's affecting more states, a much more populous area, and finally the media is taking it much more seriously and doing a lot more to raise the awareness of the population throughout the country rather than just along the area of um, affected. And I hope that what this means is that in the future this won't be forgotten as quickly and therefore the kinds of reforms that need to be put in place um, will not be dropped because of lack of public pressure. Hmm. Thank All, right. You. All right. Thanks a lot for the call, Debbie. And Sue is next. Sue? Hello. Hi, Sue. 
I would like to um, bring on a local con- comment. <clears throat> I'm dumbfounded that Bloomington, Indiana, and Monroe County do not require their landlords and all the extra refuse that is left uh, at the end of every semester all over the streets and the landfills, and all the apartment complexes are not required to recycle. And I'm dumbfounded because FIA is right here, and we have a wonderful mayor, and we have a wonderful community of intelligent people, and I just wanted to make that comment. I've asked this question for about two decades now, and I still haven't gotten a reasonable answer. Okay. First of all, I would like to point out, I'm on the Environmental Commission right now, by the way, and Bloomington does have a new director of sustainability, um, one of IU's own, Jackie Bauer, actually one of SPIA's own too, for that matter. And uh, Jackie is starting right now to set up a, a plan where there's been recycling. They had it in two of the larger apartment complexes, and then there's going to be a resale um, in August before the semester starts. Um, and all the money is going to go to, I'm going to forget the second one, Habitat for Humanity and, uh, oh, United Way. So it's starting, if this works this year, they're going to expand it to all the apartment complexes, which is, you know, the highest bang for your buck in terms of that kind of recycling. Um, if you've lived on campus, you know that they've started this already on campus a few years ago. In addition, we also have computer recycling, and when they have the comp- they've had two years of that now, and when they have the computer recycling, they do evaluate whether or not the computers can be reused. If so, they're given to nonprofits. And the rest of it goes to as green a recycling company as we can find, which also, by the way, protects your data because they smash the hard disks um, and reclaim the materials. All right. I appreciate appreciate that. Uh, I'm aware of a lot of that. I'm just concerned about the out-of-state and uh, out-of-state owners of the larger apartment complexes that have uh, not the invested uh, interest that the the local residents and the intelligent people that live here do uh, for every little item that somebody throws in a dumpster that could be reused. I agree, and I hope that Jackie does a great job in the future. Hey, uh, Sue, maybe we'll have a show on uh, sustainability later on this summer. All right. Thanks a lot. Let's go to Charlie next. Charlie? Um, Hi. Um, I have dozens of questions. Unfortunately, you don't have enough time to address all of them. Please ask your your favorite one. (laughs) Um, Last night, I read an article on the Russian press. Uh, online that I don't have in front of me to, for you to verify it. But uh, apparently an uh, a ocean-going uh, submarine or an oceanographic submarine from Russia was the first on the scene of the spill, um, or the geyser, as the woman said, which is appropriate. Um, and um, they have been contracted by BP for an assessment, and their uh, assessment included a statement that the floor of the Gulf was uh, covered in fissures that were leaking oil into the Gulf, in some cases miles away from uh, the wellhead. I wonder if you have any information on this, if you could address this, please. Thank you. I I can't address the uh, Soviet sub uh, issue, but I think we do know that the uh, ocean bed has fissures and that that in the course of a year you will get... uh, uh, petroleum and natural gas leaking into the ocean environment. So there is a relative. It's relatively small compared to the kind of spill we're talking about here. But maybe some of my colleagues would have more on that. Uh, same as Jim said, it's um, there are some of these natural uh, places where oil is leaking out of the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. But I think compared to what is coming out of the uh, the geyser or the blowout, that's a lot greater. And, and it's not just, of course, the Gulf of Mexico. It's everywhere. It was very well studied under Valdez where they were – Exxon was trying to say that most of the oil on the beaches was coming from underseas. OK. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to – I promised I would give each of our panelists about a minute to summarize some things. So uh, Alex, Joseph, you guys want to hang on. If we have some room at the very end, we'll get to you. But we may not get to you. So – Diane, you want to go first with a, like a summary statement? Um, one of the comments that I – what has not come forward at all is, is really concerns about the people that are living near there or coming down to visit there and people that might be volunteering down there. The health effects are going to be less if you are not there for as long. The longer you are there and as it gets hotter, the, um, the chemicals are getting more and more into the air. The exposure is going to be greater. The effects are going to be greater. It also that people that are asthmatic, people that are pregnant, 
um, people that are smokers and people that are of ill health for whatever reason or um, have any of the respiratory diseases probably need to not be going down to visit or checking it out um, because they are going to be much more sensitive than others. And so people should be paying attention to the fact that there are health effects just from even going down there and volunteering and use personal protective equipment. All right. Thanks, Chris. Well, I think there are two things about this um, spill or geyser that are unprecedented. One, it's a spatial scale. And two, that people haven't really thought about is this is not going to be just a one-time kind of short-term acute effect of oil coming ashore. It's going to – as long as it's releasing oil, it's going to be a chronic effect. The waves will bring oil in and coat the wetlands. Uh, You know, a week later, more oil will come in. And, of course, you know, the wetlands can probably survive it one or two times but the long-term chronic effects are um, really going to be deleterious or potentially. One thing is Louisiana is a, it's a low-lying area. It's a delta. The land naturally sinks in these deltas. The, all the oil exploration and navigation that's been done in the past 100 years, they put a lot of canals in, a lot of oil pipelines. And this is leading to even greater subsidence and wetland loss. And we just hope we don't get repeated oilings that will sort of tip this um, – really kind of fragile system over the edge. Mm -hmm. I think two dimensions I'd comment on. One is the – I think it illustrates the importance of having uh, uh, ethical cultures in private organizations that that we – that have expertise but at the same time have the ability to put huge societal resources and economies at uh, risk. And the other is I think the importance of, of the uh, government being put in a position to, to do well what it needs to do when the people uh, are, are looking to it to do it. So the kind of we, – we don't want any tax money going to the government and we don't think much of the government uh, kind of gets turned on its head when we see a situation like this and we realize it really was incumbent on the government to make sure those wells were well drilled and we were protected. All right. We are out of time. You guys have been terrific. We've covered an awful lot of territory here in, in just a little bit less than an hour. I want to thank Jim Barnes, Diane Henschel, and Christopher Kraft from SPIA for being here with us today. From Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.